The textbook definition of a monster describes an imaginary creature that is typically large, ugly, and frightening. Now, if you remove the word imaginary, the remaining definition perfectly describes a man named Nathaniel Barjona, a grotesque figure whose very presence instilled fear in the hearts of young children in multiple states over three agonizing decades. Stripping away the veil of imagination, we uncover a truth far more sinister. A monster found not in fiction, but one that walked our very streets. Barjona was connected to three disappearances of young children, and suspected in many others. The details of his crimes are horrific, and should only exist in a world of fiction. But unfortunately, the details are real. Not born from the imagination, but grim truths that stain our world. Such tales of true crime serve as a haunting reminder that there are monsters lurking among us. Some caged within the confines of prison walls, while others remain undetected and unrepentant, hungering for their next prey. This is a special dark episode of They Disappeared, where evil incarnate takes center stage, and failures in our justice system are exposed, and the crimes of this monster are told. Nathaniel Barjona was actually born David Paul Brown on February 15, 1957, in Worcester, Massachusetts. He was the youngest of three children born to Philip and Tyra Brown. When Tyra was three months pregnant with him, she was severely injured in a car accident, which left her needing a neck brace for the remainder of her pregnancy. It's unknown if this accident caused a trauma that manifested itself into the evil she would eventually birth into the world. As an infant, Nathaniel was characterized by his inactivity and insatiable appetite. He would cry relentlessly when not being fed, and his voracious eating led to substantial weight gain and underdeveloped muscle tone, rendering him almost immobile. And his weight made carrying him a challenge on his parents. But this was also a testament that from a very early age, this was not a normal child. When Nathaniel was just six years old, he had developed a disturbing habit of pinching the skin on his arms, creating bloody wounds and scabs that he would peel off and suck the blood from. This behavior became so disruptive that the school frequently contacted his mother to complain that his presence in the classroom was actually upsetting teachers and students. In 1958, the family relocated to Lantana, Florida, coinciding with his father's job at nearby McDonnell Douglas Aviation. It was in Lantana that Nathaniel would show the first flashes of the evil lurking inside of him. In July of 1964, when he was just seven years old, Nathaniel lured a five-year-old girl from his neighborhood into the depths of his basement, telling her he had a Ouija board down there that could predict the future. Once he got her down there, unprompted, he violently attacked the girl, getting his hands around her throat and attempting to strangle her. 
Her screams were heard by Nathaniel's mother who ran into the basement and arrived just in time to pull her son off the girl and let her go. The family would return to Worcester, Massachusetts shortly after the incident. Now it's said that Nathaniel wasn't punished for this incident. But where his mother was soft and forgiving, his father was harsh and militant, often using a belt to deliver discipline, sometimes for stealing from his siblings, but also because, as Nathaniel would say later, his dad thought the beatings would prevent him from, quote, becoming queer. As these events unfolded, a beast was slowly awakening. This would introduce a timeline of twisted crimes that's almost too incredible to believe. In 1973, and at 17 years old, Bar Jonah used letters and words he cut out of magazines to craft a letter to lure two young boys to a cemetery with the promise of $20 and a surprise. The letter was discovered by the boy's mother, who astonishingly declined to press charges. Perhaps seeing Bar Jonah as a troubled soul in need of psychiatric intervention and not criminal punishment, that would end up being a big mistake. That same year, a seven-year-old girl named Janice Catherine Pocket vanished in Toland, Connecticut, less than a mile from her home. A year later, just 20 miles away from where Janice disappeared, Bar Jonah abducted and raped a 10-year-old girl named Mary Patrone before releasing her. The crime would go unpunished, and although he was suspected in the disappearance of Janice, no charges were ever filed in that case which remains open to this very day. Janice Pocket has not been seen or heard from in 50 years. In early 1975, Bar Jonah, then 18 years old, impersonated a police officer to abduct an 8-year-old boy named Richard O'Connor while he was walking to school. A woman looking out her window at the time witnessed the abduction and called police. Law enforcement would later discover Barjona's car in a desolate parking lot where they would order him out at gunpoint. In the back of his vehicle, police found Richard bloody and barely alive. He had been raped and choked unconscious, the trauma of which had caused the little boy to soil himself. Incredibly, Barjona would be placed on probation for the crime and was allowed to finish high school. It was during his time on probation that he once again impersonated a police officer to abduct and rape a nine-year-old girl in Hartford, Connecticut. The assault was so vicious that the girl began vomiting and went into convulsions, leading Barjona to throw her out of his moving vehicle onto a sidewalk. A witness reported the incident, which led to his arrest. However, through a communication error, the assault was not reported to his probation officer. And in an unbelievable indictment of this probationary period, Bar Jonah actually received a letter from this probation officer thanking him 
for his cooperation. Now, it's easy to point out from here the failures of the justice system to not only contain Bar Jonah, but to not reevaluate systematically what allowed those failures to occur in the first place. If self reflection wouldn't provoke this from taking place, then Bar Jonah would get yet another chance to add to his trail of victims. Coincidentally, both of these would converge and collide with each other on a dark fall day in 1977. On Saturday, September 24th, 1977, in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, Bar Jonah posed as an undercover FBI agent to lure two unsuspecting boys coming out of a movie theater into his car. Once he had them in his vehicle, he brought them to a remote area where he subjected them to unspeakable torture involving rape, sodomy, and suffocation. At the end of the ordeal, Bar Jonah, now weighing a repulsive 375 pounds, jumped repeatedly on one of the boys until he believed the boy was dead. After Barjona left, he drove away with the other boy handcuffed in the trunk of his car. Miraculously, the boy left for dead regained consciousness and was able to alert authorities with the assistance of a nearby homeowner. Barjona would be arrested shortly after, with the other child still alive, shackled in his trunk. For this crime, Barjona was convicted of attempted murder receiving a maximum 18 to 20 year prison sentence and was remanded to serve at the Massachusetts Correction Institution in Concord. While serving his sentence, he was transferred to the Bridgewater State Hospital, a treatment center for sexually dangerous offenders, where he was sentenced to remain for an indefinite term. But as it would turn out, indefinite was a much shorter time frame definition suggests. On March 22nd of 1984, David Paul Brown changed his name to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona. He provided various reasons for the change, informing family that he, quote, wanted to experience the discrimination and persecution faced by Jews. Despite having no Jewish heritage, Barjona would assert that he was Jewish, and that he wanted his name to align with his heritage. That same year, Barjona, along with the endorsement of two psychologists who evaluated him, secured a parole hearing victory. According to redacted reports, these two unnamed psychologists testified that Barjona no longer posed a threat to society. The outcome led to a Massachusetts Superior Court judge named Walter Steele, ruling that the state had failed to substantiate Barjona's danger to the community at large. Consequently, a very chilling decision was made. Nathaniel Barjona was ordered to be released on February 12th of 1991. And after some legal wrangling pushed his release date to July, he walked out of Bridgewater a free man, a monster unleashed 
back onto the world. On August 9th, 1991, only a month after being released, Bar Jonah came across a boy sitting alone in a car parked outside of an Oxford, Massachusetts post office. Bar Jonah infiltrated the vehicle, pushed the boy down on the seat, and sat on his chest. The boy's mother and multiple witnesses intervened, saving the child as Bar Jonah fled. The description of the attacker provided by witnesses was clear enough for a responding officer to suspect Barjona, and he was subsequently arrested for the attack. Initially, Barjona offered a feeble excuse, claiming he had sought refuge in the car to evade the rain. However, confronted with his past attacks on children, he confessed to a sinister truth. He had intended to kill the child. Now that should be the end of this story, and where I tell you this disgusting thing spent the rest of its days in a locked cage. But in an unsettling turn of events, the Worcester County DA allowed Bar Jonah to plead guilty to an assault and battery charge. In return, he was granted a two-year probationary period, coupled with an unsettling stipulation. He was mandated to relocate to Great Falls, Montana, under the supervision of his mother. A pact, inked with unease, and a thread connecting darkness to a distant horizon. A change in scenery did not change the outcome of the saga. Rather, it would twist itself into a far more disturbing story. On February 6th, 1996, a 10-year-old boy named Zach Ramsey disappeared after he left home to walk to school, a route that took him through an alleyway where a witness reported seeing Zach crying while being followed by an obese adult male. Other witnesses reported seeing Bar Jonah that morning in the same alleyway, wearing a navy blue police-like jacket. Zach never made it to school that day and was never seen again. After a missing persons report was filed by his mother, Bill Belusky, the detective assigned to the case, immediately focused his investigation on Barjona, but was unable to secure a search warrant for the home that Barjona shared with his mother. It was yet another frustrating chapter in the timeline of crime associated with this repulsive monster. As fate would have it, Multiple reports of Barjona lurking outside of an elementary school dressed like a police officer prompted police to investigate. When he was confronted, officers discovered he was carrying two cans of pepper spray, a toy gun, and fake badge. After charging him with impersonating an officer, Detective Bill Belusky, along with Attorney General Joseph Mazurek, were able to persuade a judge to grant search warrants for both Barjona's home and his mother's home. In his mother's home, police found two coats, one dark blue and another with a toy badge in the pocket. They also found a stun gun and a baseball cap that said, 
security enforcement across the front. But it was during the searches of Barjona's home that authorities would find a trove of evidence that would fully expose this creature to sunlight and wake the world up to the evil that existed in plain sight for decades. While going through Barjona's home on December 17th of 1999, detectives found a list of 54 boys' names from Lake Webster, Massachusetts, along with the names of some of his known victims. The list included Zach Ramsey's name with the word died written next to it. Newspaper clippings associated with Zach's case were found, along with thousands of pictures of children, including sexual images of Barjona with three unidentified victims. Attached to the ceiling in his kitchen, detectives found a pulley that could connect to a rope or chain, possibly as a device to perform hanging and torture or strangulation. But the most unsettling discovery involved several notebooks filled with random characters, believed to be coded writings. After months of collaboration with the FBI, the notebooks were deciphered. The coded writings detailed horrifying accounts of child torture and cannibalism, including recipes that incorporated children's body parts. Even more disturbing, at the time, Barjona weighed well over 300 pounds. However, a review of his financial records did not show any significant grocery store purchases for almost a month after Zach Ramsey disappeared. It was also learned that following Zach's disappearance, Barjona organized a cookout where he reportedly served burgers, spaghetti, chili, and meat pies. Multiple attendees mentioned that the meat had a strange flavor to it, which Barjona indicated he used deer meat from a recent hunting trip. However, Barjona did not own a rifle, nor did he have a hunting license. The implication although not proven, was that Barjona served Zach Ramsey to his neighbors. Barjona stood trial in February of 2002. During the trial, thousands of photos of children found in Barjona's apartment were presented to the jury, including those of his victims who testified against him, describing how Barjona had groomed them at a young age, befriending them, and gaining their trust before molesting them. Incredibly, at one point during the trial, Zach Ramsey's mother testified on behalf of the defense, saying she didn't believe Barjona had anything to do with Zach's disappearance. Apparently, she refused to believe Zach was dead, trusting the words of a psychic over those of the police. Due to this, Charges related to Zach's disappearance were dropped by the prosecution. And after five days of trial, on February 25th of 2002, Barjona was found guilty on each count of sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, and felony assault. He was sentenced to 130 years in prison, 
with no possibility of parole. Of course, Barjona appealed his conviction, and in December of 2004, the Montana Supreme Court declined to hear his appeal and upheld his conviction and sentencing. That made it a certainty that he would die in prison. And that's exactly what happened on April 13th, 2008, when he died of a heart attack at age 51. In the aftermath, it was reported that 21 human bone fragments were found during an excavation of one of Barjona's prior residences. DNA tests confirmed those bones belonged to two different African-American males. To date, they have not been officially identified. Barjona was also suspected in multiple unsolved disappearances through circumstantial evidence. James Tedda, a 15-year-old boy who disappeared in August of 1973 from Revere, Massachusetts. His naked body was discovered in the woods near Ringe, New Hampshire. He had been raped and strangled. Detectives collecting evidence during the Ramsey investigation found the name Tedda written in Barjona's garage. Barjona was also investigated in the disappearance of a four-year-old boy named Andrew John Amato, who vanished from Webster, Massachusetts in 1978. No direct connection to the disappearance was made to Barjona, and Andrew has not been seen or heard from since. Barjona was also linked to the disappearance of 14-year-old Amanda Don Gallion. Amanda vanished from Gillette, Wyoming on October 13, 1997. The night before, Barjona stayed in a hotel in Gillette and was home in Great Falls the next day. Amanda's bicycle was discovered on the side of Interstate 90, which is the route taken from Gillette to Great Falls. Amanda's case remains unsolved to this day. Barjona's family have said very little, only that they had no knowledge of his crimes. And that is the story of Nathaniel Bar Jonah, a monster who got away with too much for too long and left a trail of horror and destruction across the United States. He's just one example of the evil around us, and there are likely more like him out there. But as long as we keep that in mind and never forget it, we can be better prepared to avoid their clever little traps and tactics. And we can alert others when we spot their lures and teach our children how to recognize evil incarnate. Hey everybody, lately it's been a struggle for me to create content for this podcast, just with everything I have to get to in a single day. Life and work create challenges that can throw us all off balance. And because of that, I'm always looking for products that can provide a cognitive edge to keep my mind in that free flow state where focus and energy over an extended period of time is necessary. Well, recently I started using a product called Magic Mind. It's a small shot of natural nootropics and adaptogens that reduce stress and improve physical and mental endurance while enhancing mental clarity and increasing your body's resistance to stress. 
I drink a shot of it in the morning, and the results last an entire day, without the jittery or anxious side effects of caffeine. So if you want to give this life hack a try, just go to www.magicmind.com slash disappeared, and you can get 40% off your subscription price for the next 10 days with my code disappeared20. That's D-I-S-A-P-P-E-A-R-E-D, the number two, the number zero. That code is also good for 20% off of a one-time purchase, and they offer a money-back guarantee. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain just by trying it. 